Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week's a fun one. We get to hear from singer-songwriter Duncan Sheik. Now, I've been a fan of Duncan since day one. Most people probably remember that debut album comes out in 1996. It's produced by Rupert Hine, former guest, and it includes that hit that will not go away, Barely Breathing. It's one of the biggest singles of all time. If you don't believe me, look it up in the Guinness Book of World Records. We talk about it in here. The song you're listening to right here is She Runs Away, which was the follow-up single that never stood a chance because it couldn't get past barely breathing. It was just too big. Anyway, his solo career goes on. It still goes on, actually. But it it doesn't, it never dips in quality, but it never quite achieves or maintains that same level of success that barely breathing had. In fact, regular listeners may remember I am a huge fan of the Covers 80s album that he put out uh, a few years ago. That's probably my favorite Duncan Sheik album, if you want to know the truth. Anyway, along the way, he gets offered the opportunity to write a musical, and he hates musicals. And this becomes Spring Awakening, what goes on to be a huge hit. He wins all these Tonys and Grammys, and that's really what he continues to do. I mean, he does his solo music too, but it's really these successful musicals that sort of pay the bills and have allowed him to be the success that he deserves to be. We talk about a lot of this stuff in here, these pivots. I love this guy. I hope that you do too. We talk about the ups and the downs, you know, the stories behind a lot of the songs, what motivates him creatively. I find that really interesting. We also talk a lot about his conversion to Buddhism and how that has sort of spiritually enlightened him and fed his life and the quality of his life. I find stuff like that fascinating, and I hope you do too. He called me from his home in New York City. before and I'm sure it's you know been burned in your mind ever since like it has for me but uh, let me just tell you when so early on I discovered you through the debut album and I loved it it's still one of my favorite debut albums probably of all time I think it's perfect start to finish I appreciate that very much and I remember being really into you and I saw I saw you on MTV or MTV2 and I don't remember what the show was, but you were talking about the music that you were that was out that you were really into. And I remember specifically you mentioned uh, Radiohead and Bjork. Yeah. Now, those those are both legends now, but at the time that was a little underground. Yeah. You know, not everyone knew who those guys were. Sure. 
And I thought, hey, I like Radiohead and Bjork. Duncan and I have so much in common. Yeah. And so I uh, I was going to BYU in Utah, mm. and you came through in concert, and you did this excellent show at a club called Deviate. Okay, yep. I stuck around afterwards. You were very kind, kind of, you know, signing things and saying hi to people. And I, I stuck around, and I told you that I had, you know, heard you say this, and I like the bands too. And we bonded for a minute. One of my... Favorite songs of yours is Little Hands, and mm. I'm going to ask you more about it in a minute, but you didn't play it, and you were telling me how, yeah, it's such a quiet song. It doesn't go over well live sometimes. and Yeah. And I'll never forget it. You sort of paused for a moment after you signed my thing, and you sort of looked me in the eye, and you were like, hey, thanks for stopping by. And you shook my, we shook hands, and I thought, Duncan and I are buddies. This is, <laughs> this is real. We're going to be friends. So cut to about a year later and you come back through with the humming album and you play a club called the Zephyr club. Neither of these places are there anymore. And I went to that show too. And because I knew that we were friends and I wanted you to remember, I wore the exact same shirt <laughs> and it was a, it was a lime green kind of bowling shirt, you know, in the nineties where like okay. the, the cast yeah. of friends would wear these button up bowling shirts. It was yeah. like that. Yeah. It was a look. Yeah, and these clubs aren't very big, so I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're going to be like, "Hey, there's," and I'm six eight, so I'm kind of easy to pick out. There's my buddy yeah. from last time I was here, but you didn't do that. But it was still a, it was still a magical night and a magical experience for me. <laughs> I'm maybe five ten on a good day, but probably uh -huh. realistically five nine. So when I went to six eight people, you know, it's always like mutton Jeff. But um, right. anyway, I'm sorry I didn't recognize. That's you okay. That's okay. <laughs> I, I got over it pretty quickly, but I just wanted you to know that in my heart, you and I have been friends for a long time, even though you didn't know that. I'm trying to, <laughs> I, you know, it's, I think that there's actually a really funny and slightly outrageous story from that second time that I was in. Was it, was it in Salt Lake City, the, the Zephyr? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. There's a slightly outrageous story from that, which I cannot go into on the podcast, but that might've been why. No. I was distracted. <laughs> well, let me tell. Okay, let me tell you. That's so funny you say that because I don't, and I don't, I don't know what your story might be. But I have talked to so many people who, when I tell them I'm from Salt Lake City, which to a lot of people sounds like it would just be nowheresville. People who go, th artists like you who go through there in concert, say I never partied harder than I did when I was in Salt Lake City, or Mormon girls are the loosest girls I know, or whatever. It, you know, it's some outrageous. <laughs> declaration that you we would just be shocked to know yeah I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't use that exact um <laughs> that exact verbiage uh -huh. but i will say it did involve a couple of mormon girls i had a feeling fashion. <laughs> and it was sort of like oh like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can only imagine how weird that would have been. Those were the days. I'm a reformed, changed man now. <laughs> they probably are, too. It actually was not an orgy, but it was, a, right. it was an event. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. This is great. I had no idea what gold I was going to get when I called Duncan Sheik. This is great. <laughs> Well, good. Okay. Well then, uh, yeah. So I was at both those shows and, uh, you know, we vibed a little bit. And so I got to, I want to go back to the debut. I don't know if you're sick of talking about the debut. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. No, I'm happy. I'm, I'm actually happy to talk about it now because it's, you know, now it's, you know, it's 22 plus years later. So uh, it's, you know, yeah. Okay. 
I want to at least start there. First and foremost, I think Little Hands is the greatest I want someone who doesn't want me back song in history. She says, How long do you understand? The last thing that I need is another man. Didn't you promise to give it a rest? Right now I need a lover. Like a hole, like a hole in the chest Oh well, can't blame a guy for trying And I'm smiling even though I'm dying To know the love What is the story behind Little Hands? Who is this girl? Well, I can tell you now because it doesn't sort <laughs> doesn't matter now. I didn't. I I wasn't really able to say it for for a long time for a variety of reasons. But um, it was actually Petra Brando who um, was the sort of adopted child of Marlon Brando who ended up going to. School. When she went to university with me, we had a long sort of friendship slash flirtation slash whatever. But it was completely, you know, un. It was, you know, it was an unrequited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we. <laughs> it was one of those things where she was this kind of like really interesting, cool girl from LA. She was just so much more kind of um exciting than a mm. lot of these sort of east coast mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of new right. england girls who i was hanging out with okay. at the time and so you know she happened to have small hands and so that was sort of the genesis of that story did you guys have conversations that were word for word what you put in that song because there is such like naked brutal honesty in there you know you're a great guy but you're not for me and all these lines that we've heard, dudes have heard for uh, you know a million times, but to hear it in that context is so hard hitting. Did you guys actually have a conversation like that? Yeah, I, okay. I, I, we did. I mean, I, again, I, I I wasn't quoting her by any okay. means, but I but there were certainly moments where you know I'd sleep over at her apartment, oh, and okay. then and then you know we'd wake up in the morning, and that and that would be the conversation. Oh, like got that. it. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. You know, and and, and it's a, so. I mean, we were close, you know, in that way, but yeah. we, but it was just it was just an unrequited hmm. um, situation. That's yeah. tough. Yeah, give it a rest. Yeah. I need another lover, like a hole in the chest. I mean, it's just just brutal. Yeah. Okay. When I was at Brown, in I was there from eighty eight to ninety two. There were a many, 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 many children of very famous people there. Hmm. Interesting. It's just a very different dynamic um, where there was just a lot of psychological kind of craziness that yeah. I think that, that happens when when you are the child of a very, very, very famous person. 
Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it manifests in interesting and sometimes like, you know, frustrating ways. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Now is Petra the inspiration for a lot of the other songs on that album or were there different people? No. Is Serena no. the actual name of girl you went out with? No. In fact, Serena is an amalgam okay. of a couple different Serenas that I knew. And it's not even particularly about them, but there's, you know, Serena Altschul, who, you know, mm. was like an MTV sure. kind of commentator for a while. And she yeah. was like a, a friend. Oh, did you ever date Serena Altschul? No, we did not date. We did not date. Okay. We did not. There's some subtext there. Okay. I, I, I'd say I had a huge crush on her. Who wouldn't, man? I still do. She's on CBS Sunday morning. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I had a huge crush on her. And and I actually, I've seen her fairly recently and she's she's got a great husband and, you know, she's totally um wonderful person. Okay. So that's okay. what I'll say about okay. that. Okay. Oh boy. I have a feeling I'm, I, who knew? I was touching on all these like, exposed nerves of yours i had no idea well i guess maybe that's why that record kind of sort of works is because like it was really about all these sort of raw intense things and i think when you're 23 24 25 years old that's when you really feel that stuff sure. in, in the most deep way and you know i think i was able to sort of get it out onto the record even though i was you know not a particularly good singer at the time <laughs> i was able to sort of get it out mm. Oh, I disagree. Uh, okay. Well, that that was going to be my question to you is when you look back and listen to that now, it's such a like, you know, open-hearted like you said a very vulnerable singer-songwriter guy, single guy feeling it all so strongly for the first time. When you hear it now, do you are you proud of it? Is it a little too is it is there like an embarrassment factor to it at all? Not that you're ashamed, but just like, "Ooh, I can't believe I was that emotionally naked on record." There's certain things about it that I'm incredibly proud of, and I can't even really take credit for them. I mean, you know, Rupert and I had had several conversations during the kind of pre-production phase of making that record. And one of those conversations was that, you know, I was like, I want proper string arrangements and I want real strings and I don't want fake you know, digital, you know, bad synthesizer strings on the record. I was like, you know, going through my first flush of a sort of Nick Drake kind of yeah. fandom phase. And so I, you know, and Rupert, I think, you know, Rupert was used to doing all this stuff with synths and mm -hmm. doing it electronically. And so he, he was pushing back a little bit, but then he was like, okay, if that's really what you want, let's do it. And we went and looked around for a couple orchestrators and we found a young guy at the time, uh, Simon Hale, who, he, among other things, he had been Seals music director for Ooh, a minute, nice. but but he was but he was really like a an, an orchestrator, and um, and he came on and did five uh, string arrangements on that record, and so those things like in the absence of sun and 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 November and the end of outside etc. You know, those we did those string arrangements in in London with 
actually with the with the person who had done the 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 uh the, who had been the leader of the string charts for the Bjork records. So mm. this all this this is all like a little bit full circle. But so I was like, you know, oh my God, this is my dream come true. And you know, to be at Metropolis Studios in nineteen ninety six, um uh with, you know, the person who did who did the strings for Bjork and to have them play these yeah. beautiful orchestrations. You know, I didn't know what they were going to sound like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I just sort of walking in the room, and I mean, I was, I was, ball- <laughs> you were bawling. I, I was bawling. <laughs> oh, that's great color. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay, so sonically, you're still proud of it. But, but yeah, but I mean, but so, but but I mean, other <laughs> other than than like Simon's work, and you know, some of the we had, I had some really nice players on the record, and I know that they're good songs. But I think as a singer, I was sort of shit, you know, like I, I, just, I, I feel, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry. no, I just feel like I was so, it's like, feels like a different person. Like I was so that I can believe. Yeah. I was so, um, kind of fay and kind of, mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I, that's the only thing that bugs me about the record right now is mm-hmm. I just seem like such a, um, like such a wuss like and i've always i've always made fun of myself uh-huh. as like the you know the, the the king of wuss rock um and <laughs> and, and <laughs> but i you know i really feel that when i hear that record i think you know it it transformed over when it went from humming to phantom moon to daylight it certainly did transform yeah and and you know those you know the later records i can um, it, they bother me less from huh. a vocal standpoint, but okay. I'm just, yeah. But I mean, again, that's, it's like, it's like hearing yourself on, on, a, on sure. an answering machine. Yeah. Like you're always going to be a little bit like, I really, yeah. I sound like that. Yeah. That's what the world <laughs> is hearing. I, yeah. It's yeah. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. makes you want to retract. Yeah. I get it. Um, okay. One other song, one other question about a song on there. I thought I read this and this was back in the day or heard you say this. The song in the absence of sun was sun a girl too. And that was her name. And so this is kind of like a double entendre of in the absence of the sun, but also a girl named sun. Do I have that right? For all the good you say it does. It seems no better when you had your say. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you intuited that, but yes, that is accurate. Huh. There was a, a, a girl who I dated in college named Sun Namkung. She was she's from Korea and um and we had this kind of crazy situation where her dad was like this like super intense industrialist 
conservative Korean guy. And when he found out that she was dating an American, like he freaked out, like and kidnapped her. And I had to go like, Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Like, I had to go like find her like in a dorm at Boston college where she was, had been sequestered away. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Okay. You just weren't good enough <laughs> but, for this girl, I guess, according to dad. No, I mean, I was just, you know, I was just this like, you know, American boy from South Carolina, clearly not appropriate. Yeah. For, um, yeah. But she's a wonderful person okay. and she okay. went on to actually have a great career in, in Korea. She's a little bit of a, a celebrity over there. I don't want to feel there's a way though. I don't want to say I'm just a friend. I don't want to wait around here you don't want to feel no pain again We just lie about it We become shadows of ourselves And I don't want to look away I, I feel like I'm like going through my history of, of romantic entanglement. <laughs> you are. I can tell. <laughs> I'm, I was similar age too. I'm in college. I'm in my yeah. mid twenties or whatever, when this is coming out. And so I can't yeah. tell you how many mixtapes I made with your songs on them for girls that didn't want me back. You know, I mean, just millions. Well, hopefully, hopefully some of them, hopefully some of them did. <laughs> well, I, what happened was I was able to turn a lot of people onto you, just not onto me through you. <laughs> okay, so we got to talk about barely breathing. Well, I know what you're doing. I see it all too clear. I only taste the saline when I kiss away your tears. Really had me going, wishing on a star. The black holes that surround you are heavier by far. It's the it'll be the thing that outlives you forever. Um, is that about a girl we haven't talked about yet, or what yeah. was the inspiration? Okay, it is. Wow, you should put out like a photo album and just put you know a picture of each of the girl that accompanies each song on this album. You. Um, I, that would get me in so much <laughs> trouble, but, um, yeah. Okay. <sighs> but I, but yeah, again, that was a, a, about, uh, um, somebody who I'm, you know, I'm not, I haven't seen her in a, in a minute, but we, we, we remained friends for, for 20 years and, um, and we were dating during that time and, and she, um, she had had an ex-boyfriend who, um, uh, was sort of, you know, maybe not particularly ready to, 
to let her go. And then he ended up on a fire escape and we had to call the police and like, like oh, two in the morning and like, and then she like, you know, went back to him. And then oh. it was like, there was so much drama. Um, and, and when I was making the record, it was like when, you know, we had, we had kind of like been in a relationship and then she went back to, she went back to him. And, um, and, and I was, you know, I was, I was gutted, you know. Sure. Cause I am barely breathing and I can't find the air. Don't know who I'm kidding, imagining you care. And I could stand you waiting, fool for another day. I don't suppose it's worth the prize, it's worth the prize, the prize that I would make, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm thinking it over. So that that song was sort of born of that, um, okay. of that sort of back and, back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And is that song? I mean, wasn't it? I think it was in the top one hundred for like two years or something like that. It just never went. No, away. it was well. I think fifty four, fifty five weeks. Oh, was that it? In that okay. So, okay. Yeah, it was like a year, a year and change. Um, and it was far too long. I mean, that was the big yeah. problem that I had because. You know, we wanted to put out a second single, whether it was She Runs Away or, or In the Absence of Sun or whatever. But the radio stations didn't want to stop playing yeah. Barely Breathing. And it was, you know, at that at that moment in in sort of American radio, it was, all, you know, it was all about getting how many spins you're getting mm-hmm. and, you know, and all, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, because it was getting so many spins, and and the radio stations were getting good reactions from it. It just didn't go away. It was like by the time we put out a second single, which I guess was She Runs Away, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was like old news in, yeah. in some fashion because it just had been so long. Um, I mean, luckily, I, I I did that song Wishful Thinking for the Great Expectations mm-hmm. soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And that and, and I and um and at that time, like I got a, a, a Grammy nomination for Barely Breathing. So it's, you know, kind of sort of like brought things back to life yeah. for a second. Yeah, I've always wondered that, too. It's, um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. You've got this giant hit, but it won't. It overshadows everything else, at least for a while there. So to such a degree that no yeah. one's paying enough attention to everything else. You're just always the Barely Breathing guy. Definitely. That was yeah. that was a, a huge cross to bear um for a long time for me like i would say basically for for a decade i was a little um more than a little frustrated about that yeah i bet so i'm curious about two things number one i'm curious how and how you got hooked up with rupert hine and why if he's i mean he works on the fix and howard jones i know you become friends with howard later i'll ask you about that but um why was Rupert the guy when you were trying to be so quiet and he was the opposite of that? And then I want, and then we'll talk about the second album, but maybe tell me about Rupert first. I did meet Rupert 
briefly before I met Howard. Um, but it was just like a sort of an initial meeting, like, you know, in LA and I had an A&R person at Atlantic who knew Rupert and was a fan of Rupert's. And I, and I, I had been a huge fan of Howard Jones first record. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was something I would listen to when I, you know, when I went to sleep when I was 14 years old, like sure. every night for a year. So I knew of Rupert. And then, you know, when that was put forward as the idea um, as the producer, I was, you know, excited to meet him. So I met him briefly and then I ended up in England. I'm trying to remember, not sure even why I was going over there, but I, I went over there and while I was there, I went to the Buddhist center there, which is in Maidenhead, which is sort of like 45 minutes north of London, because I've been practicing Buddhist since I was 19. And just by total, complete coincidence, Howard Jones was giving a, a sort of like a, you know, a, a, a little bit of a talk and, and he did a, a little mini you know, performance. He maybe played two songs and he gave, gave, and he, he had, he had just also started practicing Buddhism at that time. This was like 90, this would have been 93 or 94. And so I just went up to him and I said, Oh, Howard, like I am Duncan. Like, I know you don't know me, but I'm, I'm about to make a record with Rupert and, um, I'm I just it's incredible that you're here and like I've been such a huge fan of yours for since I was a teenager and and he was the nicest guy in the world and he like invited me back to his house and he asked me to play the demos for him and we talked through everything and and so you know we became you know really good buddies um since since then and you know we wrote a song or two together since then I love him so much. <laughs> have you have you t- have you talked to him a little? I bit? have you... tried to get him on here, and it's his people keep telling me it's never the right time, and um, so I've never been able to. I try. I talk about him as often as I can, and I and I don't know if you know this. He's uh, me being from Utah. He's huge in Utah still. I know he sells I out know. these large outdoor amphitheaters, and so I've seen him in concert probably ten times, and I'll go to Utah to see him and. I live in Denver now, but anyway, so yeah, I, he, I'm like you, he's been a part of my life as long as I can, since he came out, you know, but right. um, yeah. yeah, one of these days I'm hoping he'll talk to me. He will. He will. I mean, it's, I mean, even I'll, I'll call him. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'd love it. I'd love it. <laughs> he's yeah. He's, he is the sweetest sweetheart there yeah. is. Yeah. How was that for you? I mean, you go to this Buddhist thing, not expecting to see, Howard and there he is and then you two come away come away friends and you go to his house yeah no it was that was one of you know that was like a a, a life-changing yeah. moment in a way you know it was really it was really wonderful um so yeah I feel that's incredible. very fortunate that I had that experience yeah maybe you get this question all the time I really apologize if you do but like Duncan Sheik that's your given name because that sounds like a Buddhist name or something Sounds like a name somebody would con- change their name to when they convert to something. Yeah, no, no. It's actually my given name. It's, uh, it's, it's my Christian name. Christian um, name. You know, right. I, I, <laughs> my great-grandfather on my mom's side was Duncan Barr, and, and so I was sort of named after him. And then on my dad's side of the family, I think, and I don't know the 
the, the gory details, but I, our name was sort of um, Ellis Islanded. It was a German name. And when they came over from Germany, some variation of that, whether it was like Schaika or something, oh. I mean, we don't know, but that's, it was, it got written down as Sheik. Okay. You know, I grew up a Mormon kid in Utah. Tell me about Buddhism. Is chanting equivalent to um, uh, what's it, meditating or praying? I mean, it's probably some mixture of all of this, right? Yeah, I I like to say that it's somewhere in between meditation and prayer. I mean, we don't have the right words for it oh, okay. in, in 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 the English language, really, but it is certainly meditation, but it, it is also certainly prayer. Mm. And, and I, it's weird because, you know, I, it's hard because I, you know, there, I have to, again, I have to choose my words mm. carefully. There are a lot of Buddhists and, and particularly in my sect of Buddhism where there was a sense of kind of like, Oh, if you chant for a new car or a new apartment or a new girlfriend, like mm. this will come true for you. Like it's some sort of magical, you know, um, kind of hocus pocus. Mm-hmm. And I really am frustrated by that because I really, I, I, I feel deeply that that's not how it works. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I do think that you can achieve a lot of stuff through your practice, but it's, there's nothing mystical, magical about it. It's very much about a very practical kind of discipline, organizing your thoughts and your desires and the things that you want to achieve. Yeah. And, you know, doing that on a, on a daily basis, that's incredibly powerful. And the idea that you're going to, you want to create value. I mean, sure. Like we all, everyone, you know, everyone wants to be successful. Everyone wants to, you know, you want to, you know, enjoy the the fruits of your labor, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. But but the truth is, what you but what's mostly important is that you create value. Yeah, in some way. yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Now, I this is a really super naive question. I might cut it out if uh, if it's just so obvious and I'm missing it. I don't. Is it God based or are you sort of the? No, it's not. No. Right. No. Buddhism is not is and certainly my particular sect of Buddhism, which is Nichiren Buddhism, it is not theistic or or deistic for that matter. It very much is about the idea that we all have a, a like a Buddha nature within us, and sort of through your practice, uh, you can manifest this Buddha nature. But you know, if but a lot of you know most people walking around on the street, not, not to be judgmental about them, but they're just sort of befuddled because they don't, they're not manifesting that, that Nate, that part of themselves that is really profound and, and, and I don't want to say perfect, but, but it's, it's, you know, it's able to really create value in the best way. In fact, like we don't in our particular sect of Buddhism, like we don't have like statues of the Buddha. Like the Buddha never said that he was a, a god or, a, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he was somebody who attained a certain amount of enlightenment. And if there were a Buddhist who were to tell you that the Buddha is a god, then, you know, I would say that they're just categorically wrong. Ah, okay. Um, you know, the historical Buddha was just a person Nichiren Daishonin was just a person, but they had super profound ideas. Yeah. 
you know, in my own life, I went from a person who literally could not get up in front of 10 people and sing a song without being the most self-conscious and terrified and kind of like, you know, mortified person. And I really, through my practice, you know, I became somebody who was eventually over the course of that first seven years, able to get in front of 50,000 people and play a radio show, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in whatever town. And I do attribute that to my Buddhist practice and not in the sense of like, oh, not like it's not a prosperity gospel kind of thing at all. It's just it's just I attribute to the fact that like I wanted to create value and I wanted to do something that was, you know, meaningful to people. And I needed some courage Mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. And this gave it to you. Yeah. Okay. I don't want anything that I said to be like a critique of people who, you know, of anybody who is, you know, Christian or Jewish no. or Muslim, or I, I, I don't mean for that at all. It's just like, this was the path that, sure. know, the path that, that I took. Well, I think having a million different religions and philosophies out there is just proof that people are on their own, their own path, trying to find out what works for them. And, uh, yeah this worked for yeah. you and something else works for the other guy. And as long exactly. as no one's arguing or fighting about it. Yeah. As long as people aren't killing each other. Exactly. Right, and I'm fine with it. <laughs> exactly. That's right. exactly my thinking. She justified and then she may well justify forever. So go back then to the second album. Now I, remember uh i got the second album i think from bmg one of those you know bmg ordering 13 cds or whatever for a buck or whatever okay, it was yeah. yeah i'm pretty sure i got it and i have to admit i was a little i was a little disappointed okay um it wasn't it was different and i wasn't ready for it to be different in the way that it was different i really loved yeah. and still love to this day rubbed out that's one of my favorite yeah. songs of yours It, um, and I, I say this only because I want you to either say, oh, I love that record and you're wrong or for you to be like, yeah, I kind of felt it too. I'm curious how you felt about that second. Is it a sophomore slump? Is it where your head was at? What were your, what was going into that set? Were you trying to overcorrect? Like I'm not the oversensitive Nick Drake guy. I actually like to get things a little heavier once in a while. Where was your head? Yeah. No, I I think everything that you just said is accurate. I mean, yes, I was trying to overcorrect and be much more heady and arty. And I was, I think I was sort of trying to stiff arm the kind of, you know, the top 40, Mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of place that I I had been put in and I was, you know, listening to massive attack and, Mm. you know, not even that that record, represents that but Mm -hmm. but it's just like i was like wanting to do stuff 
that was more Eurocentric and more intellectual in some way. I don't know. And and you're probably right. I mean, I've definitely listened to that record and, you know, listened to, you know, Bite Your Tongue, for example, mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. said like, oh, God, that's like... <laughs> stupid like what why what was i what am i talking about like, <laughs> i wouldn't have gone that far it just didn't move me no, I, quite like the first one did no, i know, know right I mean? well no exactly i mean right it, it didn't have the heart yeah. it didn't have the heart that the first record had for yeah. sure it was much more about the head um and you know for whatever reason like that's that's mm-hmm. a process i had to go through yeah um and you know it was a fun experience making that record i was in south of spain um we were there for like i don't know two or three months in the in in the summer and you know the band came over and we were actually again recording in a studio that bjork had just recorded in Mm -hmm. um using that same trident console that she used and it was you know i had matt johnson you know who was jeff buckley's drummer Mm -hmm. and um currently plays with St. Vincent, you know, amazing drummer. I had Jerry Leonard for the first time. Oh, I forgot all about that. I saw him. He kind of opened for you during that second show after you'd had the Mormon orgy. And he, (laughs) I I was so knocked out by what he played. I'd never seen anyone do that, um, like looping in real time thing before. Yeah. And it was gorgeous. And then I, later on, he went off and played with Bowie. I've been trying to get him on here too. I loved him. Yeah, he was he was David's MD for the last sort of five, well, three or four years of David's touring before right. he stopped touring in 2005. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Jerry, I mean, I like to say that, um, you know, I, 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 I got Jerry uh, at like in 97 and then he was stolen from me by <laughs> by Rufus Wainwright and Suzanne Vega and David Bowie, which is like, I'm really upset with all three of them about that. <laughs> well, you can know that they got your sloppy second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But anyway, I did get to sit next to David Bowie at dinner one night because Jerry really? invited me out when there was a bunch of people there. And, um, and, uh, and I did get to like how, you know, spend, 90 minutes with him which oh i really gosh. again that was really great great experience oh i'm so jealous that's great he was my he's yeah. my favorite ever um he's, yeah amazing, amazing yeah so tell me about um when you give humming to the label you know you turn this in are they is there pressure on you that like okay we know that all the other singles other than barely breathing didn't work because barely breathing was so big but we have high financial expectations for this album and we've got, you know, and you need to meet those expectations. Were these conversations happening? Yeah. When I first turned in the record, there was definitely a, a screaming match Mm. that happened. Yeah. Um, where they were really, you know, I had somehow, um, not given them what they needed for their money and not humming was not, a super expensive record. I mean, Daylight was an expensive record. Mm, I like that album. We're talking about in the, this is the '90s, so these are very different sort of financial mm-hmm. um, times with regard to the music business. But Humming was maybe a three hundred thousand dollar record, mm. which is I know it's that's not nothing. That's I mean, sure. in today's dollars, that 
in the music business, that's that's a crazy huge budget. But yeah. but at the time, that was that was small change. So when I first turned in those mixes, there were definitely big screaming, mm-hmm. shouting matches about you know. And then you know, ultimately, they decided to put "Bite Your Tongue Out" as the single because it was like, oh, well, that's the rock song on mm-hmm. the record. And I think, you know, I actually think that was a bad decision. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, they, I think they gave look, they gave it the college try. Yeah. And you know, again, that record has maybe it sold at this point a hundred thousand copies, which again in today's mm-hmm. yeah. You know, in today's world, that would be like a really big success. But at that time, right. it, was a, it, was, it was a flop. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like it ever quite um, got back on track. Phantom Moon was uh, it seemed a little more obscure than Home at the End of the World. I really like Daylight. That seemed like a, like, okay, we're going to pop. We're going to go pop a little bit more on this one. Yeah. Um, not in a pandering, like you're, you know, straining, striving for pop radio, but more... Like I can do that too. Sure, I can put I can apply what I do to pop sensibilities. Yeah, it was a little bit of a deal that I had made with Atlantic, where I, you know, I had made these recordings with Steven Sater, um, my, you know, my my mm-hmm. lyricist from from Spring Awakening, and uh, Ron Shapiro from Atlantic. He gave them to Bob Hurwitz at Nonsuch. And Bob said, oh, I really like these songs. And so there was a little bit of like a deal of like, okay, you can go make this record on Nonsuch with your woodwind arrangements and <laughs> string arrangements and, <laughs> right. you know, whatever, right. and, and do that. And then you need to come back and make a pop record for us. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, you know, fine. Yeah. And that's what I'll do. Okay. And so, you know, 2001, Phantom Moon came out. 2002, I made Daylight. That was a very expensive record. Mm. Made it, you know, with Patrick Leonard producing. He was the Madonna producer. And, Love him. Yep. You know, we were at Capitol Studios in L.A. in like Studio A, like where mm. Frank Sinatra recorded stuff. I mean, it was like as high end as you could possibly. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like I got the very end of yeah. the, you know, right before the music business just completely tanked. Yeah. Yeah, you really did. I'm really proud of that record. And I play a lot of those songs Good. from that record to this day. I haven't seen you since those first two Salt Lake shows. So I, I don't know what you're doing these days. By the way, I got to say, were you trying to almost completely rip off Wonderwall when you wrote Start Again? about you now Well, 
Well, okay, so hold on. So Start Again is, <laughs> okay, is, is sure. hold on. No, no. Okay. No, no. Is actually written by Jerry Leonard. I I didn't write Start Again. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. That's a cover. Oh. Wow. Yeah, I'm mostly just kidding with you. I was re I was re-listening to that album again recently. I had never noticed the similarity to Wonderwall before, but it hit me this yeah. time. And um, I mean, I know there's they're the they're the same chord shapes actually, yes. but they're just in a different order. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm busting your balls. It's not an actual ripoff, but I was curious if there was no. Like but a, I mean, but I'm, a, no, no offense. Like okay. I, I mean, I I I loved when I was making my first record. You know, I was a huge Oasis fan, and and you know, particularly Wonderwall was a big influence on me, but. The funny thing is that, you know, Jerry wrote Start Again. I didn't write it. It was just, I just was like, oh, I love this song and I'm going to record it and put it on the record. Okay. So, <laughs> Good. We, you know, we were both in the same. Good. Uh, okay. Great minds. Great minds think alike. Right. Now, did that, did that album perform like you wanted it to? I think On a High was the single. I don't, I don't remember if it got big enough or did enough. Yeah, it was a mixed bag. I, okay. You know, weirdly, On a High, it got remixed by a couple different remixers um and some of those remixes like were were like number one on the u.s mm. dance charts for a while mm. like it did it did really well at, in the clubs And, you know, like in places like the Philippines and stuff, like it was really, really successful. So I was able to go tour in Asia and do all that stuff at that time, okay. um, which was great. But the short answer is no, yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. not, you know, it wasn't a, a Pearl Jam record, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what it sold, you know, maybe it sold 100,000 copies too, okay. I don't know. Okay. But um, I would have these conversations with Atlantic where it would be half them sort of saying, well, we don't really know if the material was there. And then half them saying, well, the music business has really changed. And you have to understand that was the moment of like Backstreet Boys and InSync sure. and Britney Spears and, you know, mm -hmm. Christina Aguilera. And again, no criticism of any of those folks. And, sure. you know, I think Justin Timberlake is great. But it was just a very, very different moment of music that sort of took yeah. over yeah. from, you know, post-90s. Right, right. Okay. I am less familiar with your musical stuff, uh, American Psycho yeah. and Spring Awakening. I mean, I know they're out there and I know that they have redefined your career. I mean, talk about something finally overshadowing Barely Breathing. This did it, you know, yeah. but I can't tell you that I'm intimately familiar with those records like I am your others. So I apologize for that. No, that's fine. But this had to have felt like, well, maybe it wasn't because I think I heard you say on another interview somewhere that you were not a musical lover or musical theater no. person or anything like that. And you, if you're probably like me where it's, it's almost sometimes a little weird or uncomfortable sometimes, but yet you became that guy and you've, you know, been super successful at it. How did that even happen? Well, again, I met 
my friend and my collaborator, Stephen Sater, because we were both Buddhist and we sort of forged a friendship and a connection. He's a really brilliant playwright. And he had a play that he had one song lyric in. And he asked me if I would write some music for the lyric, which I did. And that play happened in front of like 30 people in downtown New York. Like (laughs) nobody, you know, Uh, and then during that process, he gave me a copy of the original play of Spring Awakening. It was published in 1891 in Germany, but it's considered like one of the first kind of expressionist German plays. And he said, oh, I think, you know, we should make a musical. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Stephen, seriously, dude, like, I fucking hate musicals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's an amazing play. It's really funny and really dark and really out there. It's quite shocking that it was written uh, or published in 1891 because it's really avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you fucked all right and all for spite. You can kiss your sorry ass goodbye. Totally fucked, will they mess you up? Well, you know they're gonna try. Blah, 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 before the show was shown to the public. It was a lot, you know, it was seven years of development, tons of workshops. I definitely remember specifically being in the room and just being like, what am I doing? This is the worst thing that I have ever done in my entire life. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. And yet it takes (laughs) off. It's, you know, it's interesting that you say all this about the, the, I didn't realize that you had started that early because I'll be honest, as someone who has followed your career, I'm creating an arc, like a narrative arc of Duncan Cheek's career in my mind. And I'm thinking, okay, well, the pop, the pop career is starting to kind of fade. No offense to you. It's happening to a lot of people, obviously, at that time. A lot of people. yeah. And so, oh, this, this lifeboat comes around to start doing musicals. And Duncan, who's sitting there like, I'm at a crossroads. I can't be a pop star anymore. I'll go do this other thing. And that will save my career. That's kind of what I'm envisioning. But it sounds like you're doing these things concurrently. Um, the musical just is another project. Yeah. I'll do it like I, while I work on my next record. and But one just takes off. Yeah, exactly. It okay. Was, it, it was very, very, very much a long period of development. Of course, you sort of hope that something is going to be a success. But I had no real idea that it that would actually really happen. It was just, it was just like wishing on a prayer, sure. you know, that, that, Oh yeah, this thing could work in some way. But I was like, okay, I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to do the work and we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. And, you know, I mean, we had a lot of stops and starts. Um, and, uh, you know, we were supposed to go into a production with the roundabout theater in 2003. And then, you know, that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. And, you know, it was like, and then 2005, we were like, okay, we're going to do a concert at Lincoln Center, like literally one night concert. So you, and it's like, 
okay, let's let's see if somebody shows up at the concert that likes it. <laughs> right. It's not like I you know, it's not like we're touring it. It's just yeah. like one night. Um and then we had some people there from the Atlantic Theater and they liked it and they said, you know, we haven't done a musical before, but we'd like to maybe do one. Um so we got geared up and we did it at the Atlantic in 2006. We did the show for 10 weeks. It did ultimately sort of sell out and extend mm-hmm. and, you know, date David Byrne was showing up and Lou Reed was Goodness. showing up and Laurie wow. Anderson was showing up and, you know, all these like, yeah. you know, all these big the glitterati of the, you know, cool music people were showing up. Even like the producers and the director were like, oh, this show is never, never going to go to Broadway. It's like, maybe it'll do the fringe, you know, festival circuit, you know, whatever. Yeah. But then, you know, when, when, when the reviews came out, it was like, oh shit, like yeah. things actually going to work. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's my new career. Yeah, my, exactly. My new career. Yeah. talk about on here is the business side of things and I try to do it as sensitively as possible but to also kind of get an idea of how artists lives are impacted financially when things like this happen and I'm curious I don't know how this works and I don't I don't know that if we got too much in the weeds you might it might make my brain hurt anyway but is this I'm guessing this might be as profitable I don't know if that's the right word but um as a hit song because Am I right in assuming any time this musical, Spring Awakening or American Psycho, is performed anywhere, you're seeing a little residual from that, right? Yeah, it would be hard to to give you like a short answer to to that question. I mean, you know, barely breathing, you know, I'll just be really blunt. Like, you know, barely breathing had, had a whatever, after two years, it had like a million spins on American radio. It was like, and it, you know, it probably generated, you know, over $2 million worth of publishing revenue, you know, something like that. But, you know, which is not, you know, in today's dollars, that doesn't mean a lot, but it's still a lot of money, especially if you're 20, 20, 28 years old, you know, but, um, but, you know, spring awakening, and I, I I don't receive all of this money, so don't take this the wrong way. Okay. But like, Spring Awakening has generated 
easily a hundred and fifty million dollars right. in, you know, in terms of like you know globally all the productions and all the stuff it's like a very you know uh, and then but it's small but spring awakening is small potatoes compared you know if you talk about like mamma mia right or you talk about wicked yeah. or the lion king those are five billion dollar yeah. entities right. like it's more than star wars <laughs> oh my gosh i hadn't thought of that oh my gosh yeah so it's just, it's a funny thing about the theater business, which is that, you know, people, you know, they think of it as the, the redheaded stepchild of the entertainment industry, which, which it kind of is, yeah. but in a way it's right now, the theater business and the television business are the two healthiest parts of, of the entertainment business right. and the, and the, the music business and the, and the movie business are really suffering because, well, I mean, they're for a variety of reasons, but it's, you know, it's mainly yeah. because these things can be distributed digitally for sure. no money and people have an expectation that they're just, it's free. Yeah. People don't mind subscribing to Netflix or Hulu mm -hmm. or Amazon or whatever. And, and there, you know, so there's, there is real money being generated there in some fashion and people don't mind watching MSNBC or, you know, whatever channel mm -hmm. they're going to watch and they'll watch some commercials and, and that generates some money. But there's an assumption that like, oh, you know, I'm going to watch a, I'm going to watch a movie or I'm going to listen to a song and I don't need to pay for that because yeah. it's just it's on Spotify for nothing or right. it's on the air, airplane for nothing or, yeah. you know, whatever. Um I mean, talk about an overcorrection. Yeah. That's a huge problem yeah, it is. that that needs to be figured out. Um, I don't know how you do it. But I'm just saying we need to not undervalue recorded music. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. I guess it's nobody's fault. It's just like we sort of, you know, after Napster and uh -huh. we just sort of fell off a cliff of like, well, you know, and Spotify, I know they mean well. Right. But it's there it's not it, you know, if you look at those numbers, it's point zero 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 one cent per play. Yeah. That's you know, that's not right. <laughs> that's not good, you know, unless, unless you're Lady Gaga or Kanye West or or uh you know, I mean you, then nobody can make a living off that. Right. Like how are you gonna support a, a normal um <laughs> like what I would call like the middle class musician. Right. Know? Right. Yeah. You can't, you can't do it. No, I know. I know. I, uh, I feel like these days and I, my listeners have heard me say this before, so I won't go too off far off on it, but I, um, I feel like music today is almost just like a faucet that is constantly running. And yeah. And so it's valueless, even though water is necessary for to sustain life because it's constantly running. It's got, no value or it's valued less than it should be yeah. or whatever. And, um, yeah. and unfortunately you got the artists are the ones who get stuck. It's like, I didn't mean to, I don't intend my music to be a couple of drops in a faucet that never turns off, but that's what, where it is now. And people take yeah. it for granted. I'm not going to pay for water if the faucet's never going to be shut off, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's unfortunate. Well, it's a good analogy actually, because, because water like music, um, it is really necessary and it's also not free. Yeah. You know, I mean, talk to the people in Flint, Michigan mm -hmm. about, about, right. about water, you know, I mean, what, like clean water 
is is something that there, there's an expense yeah. uh, attached to it. You know, that needs to be sort of respected. Mm-hmm. And I think we all take it for granted. We take clean water for granted. And, and now somehow we take music for granted. When I was 12 years old, if I wanted a record, I'd have to go to a record store and spend ten dollars which as a 12 year old that was like a huge amount of money you had to mow a couple of lawns you had to work really hard for it exactly and now it's just like well i can listen to whatever i want whenever i want and i don't really have to pay anything i mean maybe i'm going to subscribe to spotify or pandora or whatever but where does that money actually really go yeah and i'm not saying they're they're not making a killing either Mm -hmm. it's just it's been so devalued yeah like right. all the ships are sinking, right? You know, I, I mean, again, I don't mean to be negative, Nancy. I think no, there's going to be, there, there will be a correction. I've done two over two hundred of these, and this is the topic that comes up most frequently. Just where are yeah. we, and how are we going to fix it? No kidding. Yeah. Okay, um, we're finally to '80s covers, which is one of my favorite things that's ever been out there. I love it so, so, so much. And I know that this day and age, people who do covers albums. They might be like the only thing, the only option in some cases for some people, like, you know, my regular music isn't selling, so I got to do a covers album and people tend to enjoy them, (laughs) you know, but yours is so special. And um, I have to tell you, first and foremost, Life's What You Make It might be my favorite cover in history. Talk Talk is one of my favorite bands of all time. Color of Spring yeah. is one of my favorite yeah. albums of all time. Me too. Your Me version too. of that, and, and your version of that song I, is one where I can't decide which version I like better. And um, <laughs> so I just think it's a piece of beautiful magic that's out in the world. I'm so grateful for it. Baby, life's what you make it. Can't escape it Maybe yesterday's favorite Don't you hate it? Tell me about this album. 2007, 2008, 2009, Spring Awakening is going along. It's doing really well. I'm working on a bunch of other musical theater projects, but I really haven't, I've had zero time to kind of write new songs of my own. And it was really like an art project for me. It was like, okay, I'm going to take the songs from my teenage years that were most impactful to me and mostly they were things that were done with you know synthesizers and drum machines and i'm going to sort of unpack all of that and reorchestrate them with just acoustic instruments so i mentioned i went to BYU and you and Howard both were kind enough to be on a show that BYU produced sadly after yeah. i graduated i think called the song that changed my life or something like that. Yes. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It made yeah. me so happy and yeah. I felt so validated because BYU's Mormons can be weird. And so I was really glad that you guys were on that show because and Mike, Mike Peters from The Alarm because it gave us some uh, legitimacy. But I think you picked Stripped by Depeche Mode is your song, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's did, my favorite yeah. Depeche Mode song too, by the way. So I'm telling you, Duncan, <laughs> you and I are buddies. Come with me into the trees. We'll lay on the grass. Let the hours pass. Take my hand. Come back to the land. Let's get away just for one day. Let me see you stripped down to the bone Let me see you stripped down to the bone I basically play anything that has frets or it has keys or that you hit okay. and I don't play anything that you bow or you blow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <Nice. laughs> that was my uh, sonic palette pretty okay. much. And also the other layer that's in there, which is, you know, mostly pretty subtle is um, I like to use this thing, which is called a tape echo mm-hmm. and it's like technology from the late fifties, but it's basically like a piece of tape that, allows you to make a delay with your guitar. Interesting. The impetus for it was like, these are all these like incredibly great songs that maybe get a little bit passed over because like the production maybe feels dated to some people or, you know, whatever it feels, you know, it's like very much of an era. But this is a great song, no matter how you do it. Mm-hmm. If you do it correctly and sort of with respect and, and with love, then that's, this is like an amazing, amazing song that can yeah. be completely organic and acoustic. It doesn't need to have all this sort of 80s, you know, <laughs> production pizzazz. Right, right. Necessarily, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to sound like overly humble, but I mean, I really didn't, I didn't even know if it would, if it would get any record deal at all. And we just, I just sort of did them. And then, you know, we got this very, 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 very tiny label to put it out. But it's, you know, over time, over the past seven years, um, people have really, you know, paid attention to it. So that's that's nice. I love it so much. In fact, um, you were on my friend Noel Fogelman's podcast, Reliving My Youth. And we did a top five covers of 80s songs episode together recently and Life's What You Make It was my number one pick, by the way. And he, we were commenting on how it was hard not to have all the whole top five just be made up of songs from that album. So we both had one. <laughs> His was What Is Love. And I'm curious, though, is there a moment on that album that you are particularly proud of or that you think is especially cool? Or maybe it's a use of this tape echo effect that you're talking about. Give, it, give us a moment that we can sprinkle in here where you're just like, I nailed that part. I was so proud of how this turned out. I'll give a I'll give a shout out to um, to the Blue Nile um, and and to the song Stay.
that was a particular record that was just so important nice. to me as a you know as a 15 year old or however old I was 16 um, and and so that's I think one where good one um, there's a you know particularly sort of meaningful use of that of that sound mm -hmm. yeah curious and this is um <laughs> don't, don't take this the wrong way but do you like rock and roll do you like like heavy guitars and you know do you do you ever just want to jam because you're always so soft that's, but that's what what that's what you're good at but i just am curious if you you know do you listen to thin lizzy in your apartment on your own sometime or what yeah no i do <laughs> okay i do for sure i mean thin lizzy in particular i think it's great <laughs> okay good <laughs> But, but um, yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, I could point out, uh, you know, a dozen places in my record yes, with, that, are, I know. that I, are pretty rocking, like, you know, whether it's genius or what, I don't know. Right. I didn't mean to generalize, but you know what I mean? You're just that you, you're good at one thing. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I, you know, I've got close friends who are, you know, they, they, they enjoy my music, but they're sort of like, well, why don't you just do what Eddie Vedder does? <laughs> I, I like you a lot better than Eddie Vedder, by the way, but yeah, I get it. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I, mean <laughs> yeah. I think I have this funny thing. Yeah. I, I'm more, a little more Eurocentric or kind of Anglophile in my, in my taste. And so I, I like these things that are more sort of orchestrated and, mm -hmm. and more maybe cinematic and, and maybe it's stuff from my, from being like a, a young kid in the early seventies and just hearing, you know, Burt Bacharach stuff and, and all the, you know, the fifth dimension and, and the associate, all these, all these things that are much more, um, kind of uh you know they're they're, they're just not heavy guitar driven mm -hmm. things i mean look i i love i mean i love the rolling stones i i i um i mean there's a lot of heavy i mean i'll listen to sun O. like I, i'll listen mm -hmm. to 
um, um, Godspeed, my black emperor. Like yeah. I, I, it's not like I don't listen to it and find some of it really awesome and cool, you know, or, you know, let's say, you know, a smashing pumpkins record. But even if you listen to smashing pumpkins, like half of their stuff is like super mellow too, you know, sure. right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say a much broader thing about this. I think that rock and roll for better or worse is it's sort of waned. Mm-hmm. Sure has. It's not something that's, that's in the, in the, in the sort of cultural argument the way it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a long run. But, you know, now we're in a place where if you listen to pop music, it's all some amalgam of, you know, hip hop and Mm -hmm. pop and and sort of EDM and, you know, whatever kind of subgenre of those things you want to cite, but yeah. it's, it's not rock. You yeah. know, I mean, maybe the last, the last things that we had, I mean, you still have Kings of Leon, mm-hmm. I guess you still have Queens of the Stone Age. Um, Nickelback still out there somewhere, probably, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not paying attention, but I assume they're out there somewhere. Yeah. They're yeah. not. They sold a kajillion records. <laughs> right. I think he got married to Avril Lavigne. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> and divorced, I believe. Married and divorced. Yeah. So. <laughs> and divorced. Okay. Well, yeah. So, yeah. But, <laughs> anyway, but, but my point being like, there's right. like a couple like rock, cool rock bands that are still sort of making stuff happen, but it's, really like it's yeah. such a different landscape it is. um so again just to to wrap it up um okay. I, I love rock music I, I fucking love led zeppelin i mean i it's <laughs> like i love rush like yeah. i love um i love progressive rock music uh, hugely like and i grew up on yes and huh. genesis and and you know elp and king crimson like i'm you know that's really where i come from but I also then sort of transferred into this world of, of Depeche Mode and New Order and, and things like that. So I guess I had these two competing aesthetics in my brain at all times of like, you know, synthesizers and guitars and, you know, drum machines and proper drums. And I'm always having the argument with myself mm-hmm. about what's the proper way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Now you talk about this amalgam of sounds. I think your last album, Ledger Domain, is that how I say that? Yeah, Ledger Domain. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't even know what that means. It, it means sleight of hand. Does it? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's got a great cover. It represents everything you just talked about. This amalgamation of kind of EDM, and it's got you, but with this sort of trip hop vibe and drum loops and all these kinds of things going on in the background. And I, yeah. when I listen to that, I just think. Yes, this th- today this is where Duncan belongs to me. I mean, that sounds like that. That sounds like I know better than you. That's not what I mean. But this that album sounds like the perfect fruit of where I would like to see someone like Duncan Sheik be at this time in you know the pop stratosphere or whatever in the universe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, again, it's funny. Like there are the first versions of those songs that that were very much not um, I believe it. Th- th- that we're not at all 
electronic at all. Um, and I came very close to putting out that version of the record. And then I took everything and put all the tracks into Ableton, which is like a sort of like a uh, sort of a music production tool software thing that's really powerful. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to deconstruct everything and I'm going to put it all back together again for better or worse. Like, I, I don't know, but it was like what I felt like was more interesting on some level was to, yeah. was to bring those sounds and that technology into, into the sound picture. I think it worked. I like it a lot. Maybe I should clarify I'm a bit complicated for such a simple guy I don't need much a few little things some illicit riches to live like a king I never was a one to really believe all that talk about being where you're supposed to be the truth is a joke just a cliche like life switch you make it or live for today Taking I feel like I could talk to you for hours and I don't want to keep you, but I can tell that you and I appreciate the same kind of music. I mean, you being an Anglophile yeah. and just knowing but this kind of stuff that you would cover on your 80s album, those are the songs that mattered to me too and were of a similar age. And so when I ask this question to other people, like what's the one thing that when you think back to your career that you just can't believe happened to you? And I'm imagining all of the cool people that you love, that you've met and interacted with, would be the same people that I would think were cool and meaningful too. So tell me a couple of those. When I'm in LA, I go on this hike in the Temescal Canyon. It's tough. It's like a tough hike, but you can do it in an hour. Okay. And, and so it's like a great way to clear your head. And, and um, one time I did it and David Gahan was on the hike. Oh, what? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh, and at that point, I don't even think I, I'm trying to remember if I had put my first record out yet or not, but um, I might have, but I was just, you know, I just sort of like gave him a little salute and he uh -huh. was like, hey dude, what's up? <laughs> that was cool. Nice. And then after that, after my first record came out, I became not friendly, but like a good acquaintance with Kurt Smith from Cheers for Fears. Okay. That was going to be, oh, uh, I had a feeling you were going to say that. You, I mean, you yeah. covered Shout. And so I thought, does he know Tears for Fears? They're up there as an all-timer for me too. How, what do you keep in touch? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, they, he could not be nicer. I haven't seen him in a long time, but I've communicated with him because we used everybody wants to rule the world in American psycho. Mm. And so I had to get him and, and Roland's sort of permission to do that. And, and they, again, they couldn't have been sweeter and they were really helpful. And, um, when I first met Kurt and I was in my sort of first flush of a little bit of fame, I may not have been as nice to him as I should have been. Like I was a little bit like, mm. you know, 
I was the new kid on the block. Yeah. <laughs> but but the truth is, like those first, especially those first two records, oh um, are just you know are so important to me. I love those guys. Yeah. Um, and then I'll tell you the really bad story. Oh yes. I was at the Sundance Film Festival mm. in uh, nineteen ninety. Well, it was like whatever, 97. It was right before the Grammys. And I'd been nominated for that Grammy for best pop male vocal. And the other people in my category were Seal and Maxwell and Elton John. <laughs> and he, he had Candle in the Wind. And a, a person who I thought was a friend of mine sort of casually was like asking me, at, you know, I was like at a party, you know, at, at Sundance, mm-hmm. you know, having too many glasses of Pinot Grigio and just being an idiot. And he was like, well, what do you, you know, he's like, what do you think about the other people in your category? And I was like, Oh, I, I was like, I love seal. And like <laughs> Maxwell's amazing. He's got such a cool voice. And, but I was like, Oh, John, he hasn't written a good song since <laughs> 1974. And that candle in the wind shit is like horrible. <laughs> and then, all right. And then, <laughs> and then, this person who I said that to was a writer for People Magazine, and they printed oh, it in People Magazine. Oh! Like, yeah. And, of course, that is, you know, Princess Diana Elton John Central. Yes, yes. And I, was, I looked and sounded like the biggest idiot in the universe. Um, oh, and I, to this day, I completely regret that and i just want to say to elton john i'm really sorry oh, oh man that's painful i'm sorry that happened. thanks for doing this with me i hope you could tell that i have had a long-standing emotional relationship with you and your music for a long time and uh so it was really great to talk to you about it i appreciate it very very much thank you so much you see them everywhere there you have it Duncan Sheik wasn't he great he's just so he gets it you know he's down to earth and I love people like that I want to close it out with one of my favorite Duncan Sheik songs this is called Magazines and it's off that mid-career album Daylight that we talked about I probably mentioned in here how much I love that song I would say that if you're less familiar with Duncan, but you want to get to know sort of maybe the the poppier or more upbeat side of him, Daylight is an excellent album to introduce you to that side of Duncan Sheik. And this is my favorite song on that album. Now, next week, we have a very special guest, and I have been sort of pimping it a little bit on the Facebook page, teasing it who it might be. I will tell you, it's someone who was featured on his covers 80s album i try to keep these things secret you may know who it is you may have figured it out by now but if you are new to our podcast and you're a fan of his covers 80s album and you're a fan of maybe even some of the songs that came up in this conversation uh someone related to that song is going to be our guest next week so i would encourage you to come back and check that out i hope that you will Uh, Huge thanks. Our production this week was done by our buddy Paul Underwood from Glory Days Radio. He stepped in. He's helping us out. So thank you, Paul, for everything that you do. You guys know the drill. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. It's probably the easiest. But you can also find us on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. We put out new uh, episodes every Tuesday. 
We're going to have a bonus episode coming out later this week that I will tell you about later. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Tear through pages Every kind of gold It's not Zine.